0: Welcome back to Curious Combinations, and everything's an original podcast. Today I'm going to be covering episodes 7 and episode 8 of Dark, season 1. We open on a little boy waking up in a familiar bunker where Eric was held. I at first mistook this child for Jason, but this is a different boy entirely. He's got this terrible head wound and his face is all crusted with blood, and we have no idea who has done this to him or how he got here, nor when this actually is. We'll get the answer to one of these questions within these two episodes. In 2019, Helga wakes and says that he remembers everything. Perhaps it's at this point that I should have realized that he was the little boy we just saw, but again, I honestly mistook that kid for Jason. So I thought Helga was remembering what he'd done to Jason at some point in the past, not that he was remembering what had happened to him at some point in the past, but more on that later. Cut to the credits. After work, we're back in 1986, and Ulrich is in a prison cell that looks a hell of a lot like a solitary confinement cell, It's unethical to keep an adult in a cell like that, so what the fuck is Egon doing keeping a child in there? At the hospital, we get a look at Mikkel that shows me I actually judged Hannah a bit too harshly in my previous episode. I made a mistake. Mikkel indeed does have a leg injury, and he's using a style of crutch wholly unfamiliar to me. I've never seen one like that before. But if he's really got a broken leg, he sure did walk around a long time on it without showing any real signs of pain, so I'm not surprised I missed it. I find it kind of an odd choice. But okay, I guess. Anyway, Mickle is still in the hospital, and he's loitering in a hallway, staring at a framed bit of art bearing the triketra. I know why this means something to me, and to some of the other, shadier characters, but why does this symbol mean anything to Mickle? Why is he staring at it like that? And why, as we see later, does he steal this little bit of art? In a hunter's blind somewhere in the woods of Vinden, Jonas wakes. It seems like he was hoping that his journey to 1986 might have just been a dream, and that when he woke, he'd be back home. But after checking to make sure that he still has his letter from Michael, and that he very much still is in the blind, he leaves the blind and he wanders off. In 2019, a distraught Ulrich returns to the coroner. He has questions about the little boy's body. Mads' body. He's trying to puzzle out how his brother's corpse could possibly have been killed recently, and yet still be the same age he was as when he vanished. He asks about preservation, but the coroner just laughs at the idea. All known forms of preservation, freezing being chief among them, leaves obvious signs on the body. This little boy's body was fresh when it was found. Back in 1986, Jonas wanders into the high school, just like his father did before him. He runs into Regina, who indulges his questions about what's the date and the year. She tells him that she's never heard of Michael and that Inez has no children, but she tells him he can find Inez at the hospital if he wants to. At the police station, Egon is trying to propose to his superior the possibility of Ulrich being involved in Matt's disappearance, His superior is rightly dismissive of this, reminding Egon that they ostensibly work off evidence, not hunches. But he does this by way of a pointed comment about this not being the 1950s anymore, and since we're soon going to be seeing Egon doing some police work in 1953, well, this feels like a pretty ominous thing to say, doesn't it? Also ominous is the pointed reference to Egon being three months from retirement. It's one of the most referenced and parodied tropes in American media, that's for sure. Never say you're about to retire, or else that you've got a girl or maybe a baby waiting for you back home. It just means you're going to die. That might get subverted here, but it's a cliche for a reason. Egon might just be getting ready for his final curtain call. And honestly, as an old man, he's not great. No great loss there. Back in 2019, Ulrich is making his own little madman's wall, except it's all documents spread across the floor in a circle. Seems symbolic, to be honest. At the power plant in the 80s, Egon interviews Helga about the night of Mad's disappearance. He's fishing for information that might justify his suspicions about Ulrich, and so he appears to miss just how suspicious Helga is acting. There are holes in Helga's story that Egon seems to notice, and then discount. They arrange for an interview at a later date, but Helga never makes it. In the future, Charlotte is also at the power plant for police work, and it's here that I have to point out that I made a second error in my previous episode— I really don't know how I managed it, but somehow I got Regina and Charlotte mixed up in regards to Egon. I had been thinking, for at least the past two, maybe four episodes, that Charlotte was Egon's granddaughter and that she'd followed in his footsteps by joining the police. But no, Regina is Egon's granddaughter, because she's Claudia's daughter and Claudia is Egon's daughter. How did I manage to mix that up? I truly could not tell you. Except, of course, to remind you that there's about two million characters here, and that I can't Google anything to double-check myself without the risk of accidentally reading spoilers, which I really don't want to do. So with that said, if I ever do get anything else wrong, and I will, I guarantee it, sooner or later, please feel free to kindly correct me. Anyway, Charlotte finally has her search warrant. Now, I don't know how much this does for her investigation. In America, the way a search warrant works is that it's very specific. A search warrant authorizes the search of a specific locality for a specific purpose, and trying to stretch the limits of a search warrant's authority means a competent defense lawyer will get whatever you find thrown out as evidence during a trial. But this is TV land, and so that little piece of paper seems to give Charlotte the authority to wander aimlessly around the entire plot of power plant land. This show definitely is decidedly bad about portraying the detecting side of the legal system. And with that said, I kind of hope we never get to see it move into the courtroom side of the legal system, because if it's this bad about the detecting, how bad is it going to be about the courtroom? In 1986, Jonas is once again walking in the rain. Egon rolls up on him, and after accusing him of truancy, offers him a ride to the hospital. In 2019, Ulrich calls Charlotte to ask if she knew that Helga skipped out on his interview regarding his whereabouts on the night of Matt's disappearance. Charlotte points out that Helga is a 75-year-old man with dementia in a nursing home, and that he can't have done anything to Eric or Mikkel, But Ulrich is not to be dissuaded. He's convinced that his brother's death and his son's disappearance are the work of Helga. Somehow. In 1986, Jonas eludes Egon's probing questions as best he can, except he doesn't seem to know that earbuds are not something that the people of 1986 would recognize, nor are they something that he should be trying to explain to Egon. It's kind of an upsetting moment for me, because it really puts into perspective just how young Jonas is. Jonas was born in a post-911 world, And he's now been dumped into the tail end of the cold war and i don't even know if he knows that earbuds weren't around in the 80s i don't recall getting my first pair until sometime in the early 2000s a few years after those ipod commercials started trying to make them look really cool but back to charlotte she's following tire treads through the woods having wandered away from the rest of the force and they lead her to a familiar fence it's the fence where the man in the wheelchair took claudia the place where claudia rappelled down into a chasm and saw all those barrels of nuclear waste back in 1986 Jonas, being an infant doesn't take Egon's questions about teen Satanism seriously. He just laughs as if it's a joke, and Egon isn't trying to start his own little miniature satanic panic witch hunt with Ulrich as the number one target. Thankfully, Egon isn't too pissed, and simply tells Jonas to make sure his mom takes him home from the hospital, because it's not safe for kids to be walking around town right now. Down in the chasm, Charlotte finds no nuclear waste barrels, but she does find flakes of yellow paint that prove they were there. One wonders if they were moved recently. After all, Alexander surely knew that this was coming, what with Ulrich poking around and trespassing all the time. He might have moved them years ago, sure, or he might have moved them within the last few days. Perhaps that's what he was doing in the middle of the night a few episodes ago, when he was supervising something being loaded into a truck. At the hospital, Jonas is looking for Inez. He asks a nurse to point him in the right direction, and though this nurse is clearly suspicious of him, she still tells him where to look for his young grandmother. In the caves, Charlotte finds a sealed, red door. At the old folks' home, Ulrich approaches Helga to ask him questions about Matt's disappearance, but Helga begins to panic as if he's about to have a heart attack and drop dead. All of Helga's dialogue is worrying here, from it was him and I know you, to I can change it, I can change the past and the future. Ulrich is dragged away, yelling about Mikkel, and Helga repeats the line about changing the past and the future, effectively getting me to focus on it instead of the it's him bit. I thought it was fairly obvious that the I can change it part was Helga quoting someone, and it's here that I had a truly mad thought. What if he's quoting Ulrich from the past? What if Ulrich travels to 1986 to find Mikkel, just like Jonas did? Like I said, a mad thought, but one that turned out to be true. But I didn't take it far enough. Again, I was very effectively distracted from Helga's it's him line upon seeing Ulrich, and I didn't even stop to consider why he suddenly started panicking so badly over Ulrich's presence. Given what we learn in Episode 8, this scene is made pretty heartbreaking in retrospect. Helga's panic attack at the sight of Ulrich standing over him and demanding answers is well warranted. Just imagine this scene from this poor old man's perspective. Back in 1986, though, Jonas has found his father. He sees Mikkel and Inez, and then he turns to find the mysterious hooded man, Zan's hood this time, standing right behind him. Jonas is concerned that he's gone completely insane, which is perfectly reasonable, to be honest. The mystery man, who, to be frank, I'm still pretty convinced is Jonas, though my reason for this conviction doesn't come up until the next episode. Tells Jonas that he needs to accept that Mickle is his father. Otherwise, if he tries to take Mikkel home with him, he'll erase himself from existence. The mystery man talks him out of doing so, but it leaves Jonas in tears. At the police station, Charlotte has no choice but to suspend Ulrich for his increasingly unhinged behavior, and of course he shouldn't have been on this case from the very beginning. You can't investigate your own child's disappearance for one very good reason. You are the parent, and you, as the parent, are the number one suspect. Ulrich again tries to blame Helga, but Charlotte isn't having it. The man's got debilitating dementia, and Ulrich needs to just go home and try to get his head screwed on straight. Honestly, she's kind of right. In 1986, Helga eats a familiar candy bar, Ulrich languishes in a prison cell, and Katarina tries to clear Ulrich's name. Egon isn't having it, though, which isn't wholly unreasonable given the enormous shiner on her face. It's obvious from something she says later that it's her parents who were injuring her, and perhaps that's the reason she was so passionlessly into Ulrich. If she's trying to escape an abusive family home, maybe she sees marriage as the fastest and easiest way out. That was a pretty common mindset in the 80s, honestly, and it still happens now. But back in 2019, Ulrich finally makes it home. He's not been around much, and Katarina isn't especially welcoming, for good reason. She tells him that she knows he was cheating on her, and he assumes that Hannah told, which I think is a pretty good indicator that he doesn't really know who his wife is. She didn't need to be told. She's smart enough to have figured it out. Ulrich, though. Ulrich is dumb. Why deny it when she asked last time if he's just going to immediately fold this time? If you're going to lie, at least commit to the idea. Or how about this one? Just don't lie in the first fucking place. Ridiculous. Anyway, Katarina leaves her husband with some final words. His mother called, wanting to tell him something, and she didn't even ask about Mikkel. Katarina calls her an asshole and departs. In 1986, Jonas watches his mother and father chat in the halls of the hospital and comes to a decision. He's not taking Mickle home. To be frank, I think this decision is selfish, and it's not the one that I would make. I don't think that I could leave a child in the past. Granted, we're doing a stable time loop here. And so Jonas, being the son of Mikkel who goes into the past, could only have ever made this decision. If Mikkel had stayed in the past to grow up to have the kind of son who would have gone to the past and take him home, Mikkel wouldn't have stayed in the past. It was an impossibility. As long as we're doing stable time loops, it is impossible for Jonas to take his father home. And that, of course, is part of that Netflix mind-bending tag. Time travel is always fairly mind-bending. At Ulrich's mom's house, Ulrich and his mom have a chat about his missing, dead, brother. Jana is convinced that Mans is still alive and encourages Ulrich to never give up hope, either for his brother or his son. I fundamentally disagree with her here, but let's not get into that. Honestly, it's a personal thing anyone in this situation can cling to or give up hope as they deem necessary. But Jana has a bit more relevant information. She saw an exceptionally suspicious someone, both a week before Mans disappeared, and today. A man with a mangled ear. A man who had not aged a day in 33 years. It's Helga, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And somehow, for some reason, traveling through time. We get confirmation immediately. One of our hooded figures, not the kind of pretty one that I think is the older Jonas, but definitely the one we saw dragging Eric's body, approaches the bunker and removes his hood, revealing the 1986 version of Helga. It's unclear what year he's in in this scene. It could be 2019 or 1986 or 1953 or some other time entirely. My money's on 1953. At the police station, Patch Guy is helping Charlotte track down any connection that there might be between the cave system and her husband's family's cabin, and she still keeps the poor bastard entirely out of the loop. I feel bad for this dude, and I still need to know what's up with his eye. I still have a sneaking suspicion that it could be an indicator that he's some kind of a villain. Anyway, Charlotte heads out to the cabin and calls her husband, asking about Helga and the cabin's history. She wants to know if Helga lived there in 1986, but Peter doesn't know. He says that Helga had an accident in 1986, a few days from now, if we're talking in parallels. And honestly, I'm very intrigued by this, given what we learn later. On first viewing, I assumed this accident had something to do with his ear injury, but of course that doesn't make sense. Not only do we see him scarred already in 1986, but in the next episode, we see the awful origin of his head wounds. So what's this 1986 accident that Peter's talking about? I have no idea. What could it be? Anyway, Charlotte hangs up on her husband, and again, I feel pretty bad for Peter. I'm gonna feel less bad for him if he turns out to be a child killer, obviously. But right now, I'm still going with innocent until proven guilty, and I feel bad for the dude. In the bunker, Charlotte pokes around to look for clues. The lights begin to flicker as Jonas opens the underground door in 1986 and crawls back to 2019. I'm both shocked and relieved that it was so easy for him to come home. But there's a worrisome shot amidst the flickering lights. Mikkel has pulled down that art with a triquetra on it and taken it for himself. When the lights flicker, he gives the art a glance that seems very meaningful. But why has he done this? What does he know? Whatever the answer may be, Helga too finds this flickering meaningful. It draws him from bed, and he sets off into town. Back in the empty bunker, Charlotte finds a piece of familiar childish wallpaper and confirms that this abandoned bunker is the prison bunker we've been seeing all along. That's been obvious, as far as I'm concerned, but Charlotte doesn't have enough information to put two and two together here. Though it's a valuable clue, nonetheless. In 2019, Jonas emerges from the caves and heads home. The next we see of him is him sitting at his mother's bedside, scaring the shit out of her when she wakes up. And that's well-deserved, if I'm being honest. She doesn't even seem concerned that he was gone for a full day until she sees the look on his face. He's clearly been traumatized, and she doesn't even seem all that curious as to why. He asks her if she believes in fate, and somehow she also doesn't seem concerned by this extremely worrisome question. She does manage to turn it into a psalm story about herself, though, making a shitty remark about how it's her fate for men to leave her. Boo-hoo. Jonas tells her his dad must have loved her, And gives her a hug, and she acts so confused and kind of repulsed that it seems as if she's never hugged her child before. And given the neglect we saw in the first episode, ignoring him so Ulrich could fuck her, I think that honestly might be the case. She seems like a really bad mom. In the old folks' home, Ulrich arrives to find Helga fleeing. A quick look through Helga's things reveals one of those 1986 coins on a red string, but Ulrich is distracted from his contemplation of it by Helga's dementia wandering. He follows Helga all the way into the caves, and can we just talk here about how much of a shithead he is for letting this dementia patient wander aimlessly around town and then go into a dangerous cave system? I don't care what you suspect him of. Put that old man back in his bed. But no. Ulrich decides to lurk while Helga grabs a light and ventures deeper into the cave system. It's a pity Jonas is already home by now. Maybe if their paths had crossed, Jonas could have prevented what's about to happen. Meanwhile, in an unknown time, middle-aged Helga, 1986 Helga, Looks sadly at the body of a little boy. I think it's Jason, but I can't be sure. He drags it away, and the next we see of a corpse, it's buried in the lot that's the future home of the power plant. In the bunker, possibly in that same unknown time we just saw, but more likely in 1953, a shirtless and unreasonably ripped Noah cleans blood that I suspect his health is He's the one with the weird back tattoo, and the tattoo is identical to the picture that Mickle pulled down from the wall in the hospital. It's possible I think that Mickle remembers more about how he traveled through time than he's letting on to the viewer but I don't like the implication that he might have had the opportunity to see Noah's naked back at some point in there. Ew. Anyway, in the next episode, we open on a child that I did not immediately recognize as a little boy from the previous episode's opening, but I did immediately recognize as a child from the 1950s. He follows a police car to the future site of the power plant, where the construction has dug up the bodies of two children, Eric, I think, and probably Jason. Though the redhead looks quite a bit young to be Eric, so perhaps these are entirely different kids. And if they are, how many kids have been killed in this town, and why are they being murdered and mutilated? What is Noah trying to do? Or is Noah not even the one doing this? At Clock Guy's place, the pretty man who I think is older Jonas shows up like clockwork. They're talking about wormholes, which I feel is the first sign of a big misstep that the show's about to make, as far as I'm concerned at least. Because this is the episode in which the writers try explaining the time travel, which is almost always a misstep. It's a boneheaded move if ever there was one. Just give me the premise and wave your hands. Do not over explain. It doesn't make you seem smarter. It makes you seem less competent. So while this stuff is interspersed throughout the episode, I think I want to just talk about it now and get it all out of the way. I hate badly explained sci-fi. I really do. A lot of sci-fi doesn't work for me because I need it to hit a very particular level of believability for me to enjoy it. Either it's exceptionally hard science fiction and the whole point is to accurately explore hypotheticals and real concepts, which can be incredibly dry, or it manages to walk a fine line of giving light explanations that are scientifically sound but don't dig into the details of a concept that the writers clearly don't actually fully understand. This is not either of those cases, unfortunately. This is the writers playing in a sandbox that is too big for them and trying to wow their audience by misusing concepts that don't actually mean what they're trying to tell us they mean. And the worst part is that it's not necessary. We've all experienced time travel stories before. The genre has established tropes. You don't need to get the science right. You don't need the science at all. We have the tropes. You just need to build upon our pop-cultural understanding of how it should work within a story. You don't need to put your foot in your mouth trying to explain it from a scientific perspective. The other type of science fiction that I don't like is irrelevant here, though I will mention it anyway. I'm not a fan of the science fantasy genre. That's the Star Wars type stuff, where it's genuinely just a fantasy story with the trappings of space and aliens instead of quasi-medieval Europe and elves. I don't hate that stuff, I just don't really like it, either. At least it avoids screwing up details about wormholes, though. Because in this episode, this guy's talking about biblical numerology and tying it into science. He's pretending that the three dimensions are the past, the present, and the future instead of, you know height, depth, and width, with the fourth dimension being time, and going on about how the future determines the past, which is nonsense and the opposite of determinism, and he's acting like the chicken and egg question is actually unanswerable, and there's this note about white holes that drove me fully insane. So I'm going to explain this to my understanding of it, which could still also be wrong, but it's better than their understanding. So here I go. There is one conception of a wormhole. That is not, as pop culture understands it, two black holes connected. This concept of a wormhole states that on one end of the wormhole there is a black hole, something that pulls energy and matter in, and does not let it go, and that on the other end of the wormhole there is something called a white hole, which is a concept of a thing that expels matter and energy and cannot pull it in. Ergo, it is a one-way wormhole, a black hole connected to a white hole, A black hole which only takes things in, connected to a white hole which only lets things out, is a one-way travel system. That is not what we've seen in this show. What we're seeing in this show is a two-way travel system. This fundamentally cannot involve a black hole connected to a white hole. Granted, wormholes are entirely theoretical to begin with, and our pop-cultural understanding of them is two black holes connected, as if they are a portal. But the fact of the matter is that a black hole, again, is something that only takes matter and energy into it and does not release it. Our pop cultural understanding of a wormhole is not truly accurate to black holes as they have been proposed. But that is indeed our cultural understanding. And that's what I mean when I say that authors need to build upon our pop cultural understanding of time travel and wormholes, not go back to the science. Going back to the science and trying to draw in the concept of a white hole is just tangling things up. We have a cultural understanding of what a wormhole is, and even if it's not scientifically accurate, it is story accurate. It is our culture's story understanding of a thing. You can build your story upon that and be on solid ground. You don't need to bring in shaky science and put cracks in the foundation of your story. So that's my rant. In 2019, Ulrich wanders the caves. He finds the red rope and hears the telltale sound of time travel. He follows the roar of the wind the door of the tunnel and goes inside but unlike jonas he reaches the fork and goes to the left instead of the right and so he ends up in 1953. in 1953 our little boy from the opening is being abused by his mom though this is probably a pretty usual mother-son relationship by the standards of 1950s germany and to be honest there are many horrifying people nowadays who would not look at this obvious emotional neglect as abuse Still, it's incredibly uncomfortable to watch a grown woman force a reluctant child to strip down to his underwear, and honestly, I'd prefer to have never seen that, thank you. In any case, that's when the little boy's dad comes in, and the little boy, who I'm just going to start calling Helga from now on, given that you guys have all seen the show, and I don't really feel the need to play coy in the lead up to that reveal. He tells his father that bodies were found at the power plant why the dad doesn't already know is anyone's guess he seems to be in charge of the whole power plant operation so surely he should have been contacted by the police already or someone either way the father rushes away and helga is left alone with his pretty awful mom at the coroner's office a young egon and another cop examine the dead kids their eyes have been burned away and their ears are destroyed and everyone finds it very suspicious that they're wearing necklaces made from coins that will not be minted for another 33 years Not to mention clothes labeled Made in China. That Jason isn't ethnically German, and Eric has a tattoo of a vomiting unicorn is just icing on this weird fucking cake. Meanwhile, Ulrich comes wandering out of the cave. He's heading toward Helga's family's cabin, though he doesn't yet know it. At the cabin, Helga explores. He plays in the bunker, where he'll soon be left for dead and imprisoned. Given that we're less than a decade out from World War II at this point, and he's playing war games by himself, it's kind of a rough scene. After future Jonas drops a line about the Antichrist in another scene with Clock Guy we cut to Noah, and I shudder to think that it's foreshadowing. Is Noah supposed to be the Antichrist in this story? What the fuck? Why? No thank you? Ugh. Remember when I said I was a bit worried about the introduction of a religious villain? Yeah, I'm. I'm getting even more worried now. Elsewhere, Egon is having a philosophical conversation about what makes a person a murderer, which is definitely foreshadowing, giving Ulrich's plotline in the episode. And the use of these two scenes in regards to one another means that the show is positing an answer to the question. That answer being that a perfectly normal person, potentially any perfectly normal person, can be pushed into becoming a murderer under the right circumstances. And not to go all Heath Ledger's Joker on you guys, but I honestly agree. Give any of us the exact right situation, the absolute worst dire straits, or maybe even the perfect opportunity to get away with it. And we will kill a person. Maybe it'll be vengeance, or a moment of passionate hatred, or a break from reality, or an attempt at mercy, or just to achieve some greater good. It can be anything, and each person's perfect circumstance would be different. But I honestly kind of think that anyone who doesn't believe they could ever take a human life is kidding themselves. And if you can't dream of any circumstances in which you personally would kill a person, maybe that's just because you're not imaginative enough. I can think of a reason. I think if you put your mind to it, so could you. Either way, Helga is at the cabin when he's attacked by two older boys. One steals from him, and then the older pisses on him. And spoiler alert, in America, this would mean being on the sex offender registry for the rest of your life if Helga reported you. Ulrich runs up, scaring the boys away, and asks if child Helga has seen old man Helga. Then Ulrich offers him some advice. You have to fight bullies to get them to stop, and if they're too big for you to beat, try biting them. It's terrible advice, and it's really devastating how it comes back into play later. When Ulrich wanders away, he ends up wandering into the road and encounters his paternal grandmother, who's apparently new to town, or perhaps returning. Ulrich looks horrified to see his teen father and his middle-aged grandmother, and it's only now that it occurs to him why everyone's dressed like it's the 1950s. What the fuck he thought was going on here, I have no idea. He's kind of a dumbass, isn't he? Back with older Jonas and Clockwork Boy, they're having a conversation about free will and determinism that I think is going to be very important later on in the show. Elsewhere, Ulrich runs into the nineteen fifties version of Clock Guy, who's named Tanhouse or something like that, and whose younger actor bears a striking resemblance to Stephen Colbert. I'm not the only one that sees that, right? He shows Tanhouse a picture of his own elderly self, and of course Tanhouse denies that it's him. He again confirms for Ulrich that this is nineteen fifty three, and Ulrich struggles with the impossibility of it all. At Claudia's house, Helga appears. She's his math tutor, apparently, and he's obviously been harboring a crush on her for his entire life. While her little mini poodle watches on, and god help this poor dog, we see Claudia meet Tronty for the first time. At least I think it's pronounced Tronti. Maybe Trontay? Something like that. Apparently, he and his mother are going to be staying in Claudia's family's house. Tronti's mother claims that her husband is dead, but given what we see later, I wonder if this is actually true. Back with Ulrich and Discount Colbert. Two little girls enter the shop, and they turn out to be the teen versions of Ulrich's mom and Inez, who eventually adopts his son. This town is so tangled, you guys. Ulrich scares the absolute shit out of them, and honestly kind of intimidated me in the moment. In his quest to wring out information about the bodies found at the power plant construction site, and then he rushes off to confront the police, he leaves his jacket and his smartphone behind. At the construction site, Helga's father tries to give a positive press conference in spite of the active crime scene just a few yards away. When he talks to the police, he accuses the coal industry of planting the bodies to ruin his business, and honestly, it's kind of plausible. If I didn't already know that this wasn't the answer, I'd say it was one of the more believable conspiracy theories I've ever heard, which isn't like a high bar. But it, it's a bar that it clears. In the woods, Helga trails along after Claudia and Tronty, and they come to the caves. Claudia, in fact, refers to them as her caves, which could be ominous, but mostly just strikes me as weird. Helga, jealous over the childish attraction between Claudia and Tronty, picks up a stick and entices Claudia's dog, Gretchen, into trying to fetch it from the caves. The dog goes in and does not come back. Even the house was not so unkind. And yes, that is a House of Leaves reference. I wouldn't mention it so explicitly, but as this is not text, I cannot simply put the word house in blue and hope that you get it. Whether Helga meant to hurt the dog is unclear. Either way, he doesn't stick around for Claudia to discover that it's missing. So let me take this opportunity right now to offer everyone listening one very simple bit of advice. Leash your fucking dogs. But it's my property. I don't care. Leash your dog. But he has perfect recall. I don't care. Leash your dog. But he's friendly. I don't care. Leash your dog. Just leash your dog. Period. At the police station, Ulrich makes something of a spectacle of himself, asking Egon about the dead boys in fear that one of them might be Mikkel. He's all up in Egon's face, to the point that Egon is visibly uncomfortable and trying to lean away from him without letting on just how intimidated he is by this obvious crazy person. And when Ulrich asks about Helga, and seriously, just how dim is Ulrich? Jesus. He gets yet another confirmation that this is 1953. Helga's a fucking kid here. Keep up, Ulrich. Keep up. At Egon's house, his wife warns him and whispers about their visitors. His wife, by the way, kind of reminds me of Carrie Mulligan, so that's kind of fun. Egon meets Agnes here. Or maybe he doesn't, because there's definitely something that passes between them in this moment. Do they already know each other? Please, please don't tell me that he's secretly Tronty's dad or something like that, because that would make Tronty and Claudia into even more incest. And I don't know how much more tangled up these interpersonal relationships can get before I simply combust in confusion. Hopefully, Egon just wants to nail her, which is going to get awkward, considering that I think she wants to nail his wife. The scene ends with the kids running in, yelling about the dog, and Egon leaves to try to find it. At Helga's house, Helga is feeling up some dead birds for some reason. Apparently they're beautiful once they're dead, which is fucking concerning. Tell me again why this guy was the one chosen to dispose of the little boy's corpses? I mean, at least we know Mans had no signs of being molested, but oh no. In any case, Ulrich rolls up with Helga and his box of birds, and oh boy, was I not expecting this scene to go where it did. Oh my god. Ulrich sits down with Helga and shows him the 1986 coin on a string, and Helga asks if Ulrich found the man that he was looking for. Ulrich says he did, and Helga says he looks sad, and when Ulrich sees the box of corpses, he asks if Helga killed the birds. Good question. Helga didn't, though. His story about them falling from the sky inexplicably is obviously the truth, but Ulrich isn't swayed. He tells Helga that Helga will kill eventually, and Helga finally realizes that something is wrong with this strange adult man. He bolts, Ulrich grabs him, and Helga bites, just like Ulrich told him to. They run off into the woods, Helga sprinting for the cabin, but he's not a match for a grown man. Ulrich catches him, throws him to the ground, and seemingly kills him by bashing his head in with a rock, It's visceral and it's horrifying, and I really didn't think that Ulrich would go through with it. Apparently, meeting the defenseless little boy version of the man who he thinks killed his brother and his son are the right circumstances for Ulrich's one bad day. It's not a good look, and I'm not largely sympathetic. It's a bit minority report, isn't it? And Ulrich doesn't actually know that Helga killed anyone anyway. He's just murdered a little boy based on a hunch about what the boy might do once he's a man, or at least so he thinks. Helga, as we know, is not dead. At Helga's house, Egon looks for his daughter's dog, and Helga's mom looks for Helga. All she finds is a box of dead birds, and she doesn't seem especially shocked by this. She's certainly nowhere near as repulsed and frightened as a 1950s housewife should stereotypically be. In the bunker, the very much not yet wallpapered bunker, Henrik finds what he clearly thinks is Helga's body. But Helga's not dead, or if he is, he's not going to stay that way for long. As the previous episode shows us, he's going to wake up in the wallpapered version of the bunker, and sometime after that, he's going to start helping lure other kids there and to hide the bodies after they die. Which brings up a question for me. If Helga ends up being held prisoner just like Eric was, why is Helga allowed to live but Eric was killed? Were they both subjected to the same thing, except Helga survived it for some reason? Or did Noah, or whoever else, make the conscious choice to spare Helga for future use as an accomplice? At Claudia's house. Claudia's mom and Tronti's mom have a bit of a sapphic moment. And again, I have to say that if Vinton's relationships get any more tangled up and quasi-incestuous, I'm going to lose my mind. Claudia's dad looks like he wants to nail Tronti's mom. And Tronti's mom seems to want to nail Claudia's mom. And Tronti grows up and nails Claudia. And how many levels of this are we going to do? My head is spinning and it's getting kind of gross. Anyway, Claudia herself sulks over the loss of her dog, and Tranti pulls up his sleeve to reveal a series of cigarette or perhaps cigar burns that could be self inflicted, but are more likely from his supposedly dead dad. I don't think the man is actually dead. My theory is that they're running from him. Then we see the wall of pictures again, with young actors and actresses matched up with their older counterparts playing the same characters. There's no one included here that we haven't seen, but you can bet your ass I double and triple check to make sure. But the person who's got this wall of pictures her we sure as shit have not seen. She's got this wild crone or witch type energy going on, and I have no idea who the hell she is, but I am hella interested in her sudden appearance in the story. Is she a counterpart to Noah? Is she opposing him? Or is she another threat? I can't wait to find out. But we end with Tanhouse. His older version, still speaking with probably Jonas, wants him to fix the steampunkish device which he claims creates a wormhole through which one can travel 33 years into the future or 33 years into the past. He also claims that the wormhole in the caves was created by, quote, an accident at the power plant a few months ago, which does not at all make sense to me. If the power plant did accidentally create it, who built the doors? Who dug the tunnel? What's the wind all about? And why wouldn't the main passage be the 1986 passage instead of, as far as I can tell, from the angles of the forking corridors, the 2019 passage? Now this may just be camera fuckery, maybe the camera is making it look as if three branching pathways are not equidistant from one another, but it truly does appear as if the 2019 passage forks in two directions, not as if all three directions form a proper three-way crossroads with all options being equal to one another. But let's put that aside for now, because what old Jonas says next is a big twist. He doesn't want to create a wormhole with his device. He wants to destroy one. Presumably the one that the power plant created. To which I say, fucking why? Couldn't you just bring some dynamite and cause a cave-in? Like, go into the tunnel, light a charge, and blow the tunnel up. Maybe you die, or maybe you manage to safely make it back to your preferred time. Either way, is that not the problem solved? Maybe the wormhole technically still exists, but it doesn't cause a problem if no one can reach it, right? Either way, Tanhouse promptly throws probably Jonas out. Clearly, he doesn't want the wormhole destroyed. But we get that conspicuous line again, the one comparing Vinden to a festering wound, which I find very interesting. I had wondered if that line had something to do with nuclear waste earlier, but now I'm wondering if it's more metaphorical, and maybe that it ties in with just how tangled the relationships are getting. What if Vinden is kind of imploding in on itself through time? What if all the time travel shenanigans and tangled interpersonal relationships are turning into a big tumbleweed because the wormhole is somehow making them spiral out of control? They're all getting tied closer and closer together, everybody cheating and committing incest left and right, and I'm kind of imagining this awful spiral in my head, with everyone getting closer and closer to one another until everyone's related to everyone else, and people are their own grandfathers, and it's just incest all the way down. Is that a thing? Is that a thing I need to worry about here? Like I said, Tanhouse throws Probably Jonas out, but he leaves with some parting words. Probably Jonas has seen the future and wants to, quote, set it right, which brings me to the reason that I think he's Probably Jonas. The guy, evidenced by this scene, wants to change the timeline, so it's not like he's precious about preserving the way things were meant to be or something like that. So why did he care so much about making sure that Mikkel doesn't return to 2019? What I think is that Mikkel needs to be in 1986 for this guy to live. He did mention Michael saving his life at some point, after all. And what reason for needing Mickle in 1986 could possibly be stronger than simply wanting to exist? I think this guy is Jonas, and I think he wants to change the future, and I think that even if he isn't precious about existing for selfish reasons, I think he needs Mickle in 1986 because he needs to fix the future, which he can't do if he's never born. So he needs to make sure that his younger self doesn't erase them both from existence, which explains why he's so intense in his scene with Jonas in 1986. But I could be wrong. And honestly, maybe that explanation that I just gave doesn't even make sense. Maybe you all are laughing at me right now, listening to the way this show is making my head spin. In that case, you're welcome. I hope you're having fun. Tanhouse, though, he's got probably Jonas's wormhole device, and he reveals that he's also got the earlier in time version of it stashed away. He sets them side by side, and he stares at them in quiet contemplation. Back in 1953, Tanhouse spots Ulrich's forgotten coat and hangs it up in case he comes back for it. But he can't resist checking the pockets, and he finds Ulrich's phone, which scares the shit out of him, as it rightly should. Outside of the bunker, we get one final shot. Ulrich has gone full blue screen of death in the aftermath of what he thinks is a murder. Here's hoping that he knows how to get back to 2019, because I'd really like to see the look on his face when he realizes that nothing has changed. But if I'm being honest, I don't think he's ever going to make it back. Jonas made it back because he had Ariadne's thread, that being the Geiger counter that older Jonas gave him. Ulrich doesn't know his way around the caves. I don't know if, when he's not following Helga, he can make it back to the tunnel. And I don't know if he even knows that that's what he needs to do. Honestly? Honestly, Ulrich has been cemented in this episode as kind of a dipshit. Well, with all of that said, I am really loving this show still. And I'm closing in on the end of this first season. I have only two episodes left, and I'm going to be watching them as soon as I finish this recording. I'm going to take a brief look... Right this second at what the titles of these episodes are going to be and see if I have any predictions to make. So our episode nine is titled Everything Is Now, which I suppose could tie into my idea of the time travel causing the town to sort of implode upon itself. We do have our three separate timelines, but the way we're seeing things, the way the viewer is experiencing those timelines, everything is now. I'm in 2022, and I'm watching 2019 and 1986 and 1953. And for me, it's all right now. But our episode 10 is called Alpha and Omega, which brings us back to the religious themes and the potential religious plot lines that we may be doing. It ties into themes of Christian and Abrahamic God, which I don't love. But maybe they could be doing something interesting with the Antichrist. I have historically enjoyed things that have done the Antichrist concept well. I loved the first five seasons of Supernatural, and they did touch a bit on that, though they really fucked it up in season five. Um, and they could do it well, except that if they are going to do it, if that's what they're going to do with Noah, Noah is going to have to present me with many more reasons to find him interesting, because so far, all he has shown me is that he has a nice back, which is not enough to make a character interesting, not at all. In any case, like I said, I am so excited to watch these last two episodes, and of course, I'm very excited to get into season two as well. If you are also interested in making sure that I get to watch Season 2 as soon as I can, what you're going to want to do is head over to my Patreon, where for $1 per month you will have access to up to four polls per month determining what it is that I watch from week to week, and what it is that I watch from week to week is going to determine what I cover on the podcast. Right now, obviously, I've been covering Dark Season 1, and I hope to get into Dark Season 2 right away, and hopefully, right after that, I'm going to be able to get into Dark Season 3. But what am I going to be watching after Dark? I don't know and you, for only a dollar a month, can help me decide. If you would like to send more than a dollar my way, and of course, you don't even have to do that, but if you would, if you are interested, and you do have $5 per month to spare, then you can, if you're interested, head over to the Patreon and sign up for the $5 tier, wherein you will have access to all of my reactions, my first-time viewing reactions, to everything that I watch, including some movies, and all the shows that I've watched before Dark, which includes things like Squid Game, Bly Manor, midnight mass all kinds of stuff and of course many more shows and movies in the future i hope you're enjoying the podcast i'm really enjoying making it i'm enjoying the process of writing these scripts though it's taking more time than i appreciate i really am enjoying watching the show and writing the scripts and i'm really enjoying reading the scripts and i'm honestly kind of having fun editing the audio too i can't pretend that i'm doing a phenomenal job the audio quality is not phenomenal i know this it will get better as i improve but I'm really enjoying this, and I hope you are too. And if you are enjoying this, I would appreciate if you could leave a rating or a review on your preferred podcasting app. Or, if you don't want to do that, just go tell a friend. Tell anyone that you know who enjoys the television show Dark about what I'm doing here. Maybe they'll enjoy the podcast, just like you do. With all of that said, thank you for listening, and I will be back very soon with my coverage of the penultimate episode and the final episode of Season 1 of Dark.